0: Hello and welcome to Drill to Detail and I'm your host, Mark Rittman. So I'm very pleased to be joined today by an old friend that I think I must have met the first time back in 2005 when I blogged about his conference paper on agile methods in data warehousing and and who's still at the forefront of the data warehousing industry today. So, Kent Graziano, it's great to have you back on the show, and how are you doing?
1: Great, Mark. Thanks for, for having me again. Uh, it was fun the last time. I'm looking forward to having another great conversation with you.
0: Okay, Kent. So, just um, for anyone who's not heard of you, tell us, um, uh, tell us what you do currently. You work at Snowflake. What do you do there? And um, maybe do a little bit of an introduction as to, you know, I suppose, how you got there. Sure thing. So,
1: I'm the Chief Technical Evangelist at uh, Snowflake, and I've been with the company for a little over three and a half years now. Um, and I, I'll i say I accidentally tripped over the company, attending a big data meetup in Denver, uh, which was, oddly enough, put on by the Rocky Mountain Oracle User Group. And um, I got introduced to the, the company, and the technology, um, loved the vision, loved the product, the way it was... Uh, presented, and it just solved, seemed to solve so many problems to me that I had seen as a data architect throughout my career that I just you know had to become part of it. Uh, career-wise, I, like you said, you and I met back in the early 2000s in um, the Oracle Development Tools User Group. I started in the Oracle community actually in uh, 1989, so way back, version 5 of Oracle, um, and I, I was You know, I've worked in the Oracle community for that entire time and got to meet a lot of folks like yourself, presented conferences, uh, eventually uh, turned into uh, the the Data Warrior, is the the name of my blog, and became uh, very much focused uh, after, I'll say about the mid-90s, on data warehousing. I got introduced to Bill Inman and Claudia Imhoff, and had the honor of co-authoring a book with Bill on data models. And um, just went from there in doing all kinds of different data warehouses for all sorts of organizations. Uh, I've worked in and out of uh, various industries, either as a consultant, sometimes as an employee. I worked for HP for three years working on their internal data warehouse on NeoView. So I uh, managed to get some exposure outside the Oracle world to other technologies. So that was really my introduction to the MPP world was... uh, HP NeoView, and then got to do a little work in SQL Server as well uh, throughout my career as a a data warehouse architect and consultant. And all along the way, um, uh, thanks to the mentorship of uh, the president of the Rocky Mountain Oracle User Group back when I started, I learned about doing presentations and giving back to the community. And so that sort of built my uh, profile in the industry and I'm where you met me, obviously, uh, presenting at Oracle User Groups. And that, all of that experience led me to where I am today, to being an independent consultant and then starting a blog and then getting the opportunity to go to work for this fantastic, um, what you now called a late-stage startup company, Snowflake, and getting to be their chief evangelist globally.
0: Yeah, and I mean, actually, I, in some respects, I owe you an apology because um, when when you first joined there, I was—I um, wouldn't say I was sceptical, but I was certainly—I um, I didn't. Kind of, I suppose, in a way, I, I didn't anticipate the 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 supposed meteoric growth that Snowflakes had, and I suppose. The real world solve real world problems. It solves for people, and the way I suppose it, it has introduced cloud technology and cloud benefits to um, the sort of data warehousing world, and and it's been certainly been a meteoric um, sort of few years for Snowflake. Really, I mean, just maybe just give us an idea of for, for anybody who doesn't know anybody who doesn't know who Snowflake are, and and um, I suppose how that product and company came about. Maybe just do a little potted history of of, of what Snowflake is and who they are.
1: Oh, sure. Um, so Snowflake is uh, based in Silicon Valley, actually in San Mateo, California. Started The company was founded in 2012 by uh, two guys who were originally at Oracle, who had an idea for building a brand new relational database that would be built specifically in and for the cloud and be able to take advantage of some of the um, key features that are available in the cloud that we don't have in on-prem systems. And so they actually designed and built a brand new architecture specifically to support high-speed analytics. Um, so it's, uh, it's got all the, the best features uh, that we've all seen. It has the ability to scale incredibly like an MPP. So it's got MPP features, it's got columnar features, it's, uh, but it's fully relational fully SQL based and also address some big data issues that weren't being addressed by the the mainstream vendors in that we can ingest semi-structured data directly into a column in a table in Snowflake and then write SQL against it and this is you know one of the things that attracted me to the company it was these these features these were problems that were in the industry that people were having to spend a lot of money and a lot of engineering time trying to solve, I'll say manually, you know, being able to parse out all this semi-structured data and just to put it in relational tables to run queries against it. Well, Snowflake invented a new data type. I mean, they were building a brand new database from scratch. So why not invent a new data type that solves a problem that nobody else had solved? So all that came along. And so they they spent about three years in stealth. And then in 2015, had their first GA release There was already a couple of beta customers running. And I'll say in late, uh, about six weeks later, after they went GA, is when I saw my first Snowflake presentation. Um, And at that time, the company was about 80 people. Um, After a a month or so there of me following the company, I had the opportunity to apply for a position and and was hired in to be the evangelist for the company. Um, And at that point, when I started, there was 100 people in the company. And you talk about the meteoric rise. Well, let's, let's talk about the meteoric growth of the company as well. Uh, the, the product was so promising and solving so many key problems that we were able to attract nearly a billion dollars in venture capital funding, which then allowed the company to grow. So three little over three and a half years ago, late 2015, there was 100 people in the company. Now there's over 1,300 people worldwide. We've got went from being uh, a company based in Silicon Valley, uh, marketing primarily in the U.S., to having a huge presence all across EMEA, as you yourself have now experienced. And now we also have uh, offices over in Asia-Pac, specifically in Australia, New Zealand, and Singapore. And it, it's, it's been phenomenal. Um, I, I And I understand your skepticism when we first went there. It, it was the technology and what we are able to do and the way we're able to scale, handle the semi-structured data seems unbelievable to experienced data warehousing people because we, those of us who have been in the industry I've been in it for almost 30 years now, we've never seen technology that could do this. And all promises from every vendor that they were going to handle all these kinds of problems turned out to be, you know, um, pretty far reaching and for the most part, never really materialized. Uh, so to see a product that was able to do this is, is quite stunning. And I very frequently had people asking me is like, well, you know, how is this possible? It, 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 this doesn't seem like it could really do it. Uh, which is one of the reasons snowflakes sales motion has always included doing a POC because it's seeing is believing if you get people I look at people like myself who have been doing this for years, uh, folks that you and I know, Mark, in the Oracle Ace Director community, people in the Oak Table network. Um, you know, those guys aren't gonna aren't gonna believe it just because you've told them it can do it. They need to see it because that's it. The seeing is believing because it is such a drastic difference from what is currently available in the, the legacy technologies and the on-prem technologies. Um, yeah, 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 you really do have to see it. But the one of the reasons and the way it was able to be accomplished was the fact that our founders did indeed write this from scratch. They, they didn't base it on any existing technology. Uh, it's not like a, another rev off of Postgres or a wrapper on top of Hadoop. It is a it is a true relational database, SQL based, designed though specifically for data warehousing, analytics, data science, um, and that's what allowed them to build this thing out and really make it the incredible engine that it is. And I, and I think in part, you know, the 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 rise of the company and the uh, Uptake of the technology is because it actually does deliver on all the promises, and people are seeing that. And you know, companies all over the world are able to put in, you know, very large amounts of data and, and scale as they need, without a lot of um, heartache, engineering maintenance. Uh, it just it, the architecture with this the multi-cluster shared data architecture, which separates the compute from the storage is a total game changer. It's a brand new architecture uh, where before we had shared nothing and and shared disk architectures. This is multi-cluster shared data. It's completely separated that storage from the compute, which allows us to then design and create independent compute clusters to access the same common data set, which has been the, the dream of data warehousing for, for 30 years to have that single source of truth for the data, everybody's looking at the same data. But now we can do it without the contention of having everybody trying to query the data and load the data all at the same time against a finite set of resources. And that's where the architecture and the ability of the cloud changed everything to be able to have these independent compute nodes access that data so you don't have the contention. So you can run ETL with one set of compute and run BI queries with another set of compute and have your data scientists pull it pulling the data and doing advanced analytics on it with a different set of compute. But it's all against the same engine. And that that's the same data. That's why it's it's so exciting to see this. And and really why I do believe it's you've you've seen this meteoric growth is because once people saw what it could do and you know, some bigger customers got on board and said, and started telling people about what they were able to do. Well, then, then people started looking at it more seriously and saying, you know, how can we lower our total cost of ownership in our analytics platform? How can we get to market faster? And indeed, this is a follow-on to what you first saw me doing, agile. How can we do agile data warehousing? How can we deliver faster? Well, one of the things that's always slowed us down was We might start building and gain a lot of momentum, have a highly successful uh, platform, but then we get overloaded with, now we have too many users and the box slows down. And now we got to go through a procurement process to buy a bigger box. And then we got to port the data from one box to another or worse yet, replicate the data. So now we've got the same data in multiple physical servers. And the, the architecture that Snowflake has built allows us to solve all of those problems so that we can now start building out an analytics platform incrementally and have success and have growth and not be boxed into a corner in a data center.
0: Let me stop you there. Let me stop you there. That's <laughs> fantastic. I mean, that's, there's a huge amount, huge amount to unpack in, in, in what must be the longest ever response to a question in uh in in uh on, on the podcast it's great to uh great to be back on the show uh, um, uh ken um so there's a huge amount in, in what you said there so so let's kind of go back and pick through some of that there's um so so again to me and just as observation for me is is the thing that i thought was unambitious about snowflake was actually i suppose master masterstroke which was the fact it actually although it behaves differently to what we're used to seeing in the past. Um, it actually you the way you manage Snowflake, the way you can do it, use it's all it's all done through the command line, it's SQL, and the fact it kind of behaves like a data warehouse and things like zero copy clones and so on makes sense to people who are used to things like Oracle and SQL Server and so on. You know, it, it has the it has the air of familiarity whilst as you say solving a few problems. So let, let's kind of take a step back and and I think to understand what Snowflake does I think it's maybe good to understand what was there before and and maybe what problems, what were the limitations of those architectures. So, you know, you you and I have been doing this for a long time, and you know, you mentioned I think some ancient databases there back, back at the starts. You look back at um, things like Teradata, Oracle, and so on. You know, what does, what how does a typical on-premises data warehouse server work, and what were the limits that you we were starting to hit back at you know a few five ten years ago, really?
1: Sure, uh, the the traditional boxes for one are just that, they're boxes, right? It's a, it might be a server or a set of servers, a disk, a set, a disk array, uh, but there were always, as you configure these, you had to know ahead of time, pretty much, what what are we gonna need? How how much resources will we need for our data warehouse? And by then, that with that knowledge, we then Purchase a box, whether it's a, um, an appliance uh, like Teradata or Exadata, or you're installing a SQL server or a, um, a Vertica uh, or something like that onto a physical server, you've got to size the box. And I even remember the last the last consulting gig I had before coming to work at Snowflake, the first day, very first day, first conversation I had with the VP of IT, He said, I need to know how big a box I need to go buy. And my answer was, I can't tell you because I know nothing about what you want me to do yet. I don't know how big a data warehouse you're going to need. I don't know how much source data you have. You haven't told me how many users or what the applications are. So I can't tell you right now what size box you need to buy. And he followed that with, well, that's problematic because it's going to take at least six weeks once we figure out how big a box we need for us to get it, purchase it, and then probably a few more weeks to get it installed in our data center. And so that was the tr- that's the traditional world of having to have a piece of hardware and having sized that piece of hardware to the anticipated need in our data warehouse. And this was true regardless of which of the, the databases, or appliances you are working with uh, and by virtue of the decision you make on what to buy that puts an end state boundary on how big you can get how much cpu horsepower do you have so that it limits one of several things it either limits the size of the data warehouse how big can it get how many terabytes of data could it be or it re- or it limits the number of concurrent users. How many processes can we have running at any one time? And for the, uh, the folks who built very successful data warehouses in those platforms, often they, they ran into the issues of, wow, we now have to regulate when our load process runs and when our queries are being run because we can't run them both at the same time we have to have an onboarding system now for adding new users because we're right near the limit. And maybe we can handle 10 more users, but we can't handle a hundred more users. Uh, And so those were limitations that actually limited the ability for a data warehouse program to be successful within an organization Uh, and certainly limited their ability to be agile and adjust to changes in the uh, business environment and the demands of their constituents in in trying to serve data. Those were all kind of limitations that we had in those environments.
0: Okay, and so again, back in those days, there was quite a big debate about whether you went down MPP or whether you had shared nothing or or shared everything or whatever. Um, And and yet you mentioned about um, the way that Snowflake works with its separation of compute and storage. I mean, that's something that we've heard about from Hadoop before, and it's, it's an idea that's been around for a while. But why, I suppose, in a way, how does Snowflake's architecture differ from MPP or sort of shared everything? And why is that, in your view, a better way of architecting uh, data warehouse servers today?
1: Yeah, so the, so the, the, the key difference, well, there's, there's a couple of key differences. First off, of course, is the fact that the storage and the compute are separated. So the storage... We'll say taking it from uh, taking a note from the big data world, being able to put all your data in a single centralized set of low cost storage, right? Um, Now, because this is a database, it's wrapped with tables and schemas and databases, just like we had in the traditional world. And so, this is to your point earlier, you said it has that familiar feeling. So yeah, absolutely, you, you log into Snowflake and you see databases, you see schemas, you see tables, you see views, you see sequences, you see constraints, you see users and roles. So that's all very, very comfortable. And one of the things we learned in the di- big data era is there's way more people that know and understand SQL than any of the other programming languages, whether it's MapReduce, or Java, or even Python, that in the database world, in the world of analytics, people know SQL. So that was key to the architecture that this was a SQL-based data warehouse system. Now, the sep- so we have the storage, and you see all these common objects. Then on the compute side, though, we now, with that separation in our architecture, you now have complete control over provisioning the compute. And I think of it as just-in-time provisioning. I need to run a job. I need to run, let's, let's call it, uh, I need to do a big load. I want to load a whole bunch of data from my ERP system. So I write a you know traditional ETL-type batch process, but... I have to have power for that. I need that compute so I can create what we call a virtual warehouse in Snowflake and say, how big does that need to be? Is it, is it one node? Is it two nodes? How big is that cluster? What kind of throughput do I need? And I can configure that on the fly, give it a name and then start running my process. And I can turn on a thing called auto suspend. So when the process is done and the compute's no longer needed, it automatically spins itself down so i'm not paying for that resource when nothing's happening and that's again that's a concept of elasticity and pay as you go that we get with the cloud and this is where back to you know why we are so unique in that our founders wrote this system to take advantage of those sorts of things now we wanted to have another set of users who are going to query, say your finance department, needs to run month end reports. We can configure a separate set of compute for them, and it's going to run against the same database and databases as that ETL does. So we're not having to replicate the data, but yet we've completely been able to separate the compute resource, so our ETL now can run during the day. It doesn't have to be in a limited batch window we can start addressing things like near real time loads while our report users are running their queries. And the thing that the differentiator there over the uh, shared nothing and shared disk is that separation of the compute from storage, but then our cloud services layer that wraps around that, that does the transaction management the ACID compliance, make sure that you have read consistent views. So I fire off a query. I don't want that data changing in the middle of the query execution. Yeah, the ETL is running under the covers, but we've isolated that. So we now have a read consistent view and our cloud services layer allows us to do all of that so that we can have multiple virtual warehouses running with different constituents, asking different kinds of Questions, and different kinds of queries. You could have a streaming process loading. You could have a batch process loading. Um, you can have somebody running a data science algorithm against this data, and it's all been separated and managed for you. And there's, and this is the the the, the coolest part about this is the end user, or even the database architect, the data warehouse architect doesn't have to set anything up, it's all built in. So they don't even have to worry about this. All they need to figure out is how how much compute does this process need? And then set on the auto suspend and auto resume. Then when people hit it, it turns on. When they're done with it, it automatically turns off. And that's something that no other system that I've seen can, can do and put it all together in this nice uh, data warehouse SQL wrapper. That we all understand.
0: Okay, okay. So let's maybe contrast this. I mean, let's maybe contrast this with with other approaches that have been taken. So, um, so you, you, another another um, another data warehouse database that, that that also has ability to scale is is, is so like bigquery or any I suppose any of those I suppose serverless um, maybe less. Um, Less kind of like um, data warehousey sort of like um, sort of services, things that are more like table as a service, and so on. I mean, you know, if you look at how scalable, say, BigQuery is or things like that, how again, why why why, why were the design choices taken that, that that Snowflake did, and you know, where why would I suppose to you really why why do we find why do I find that Snowflake is more used than BigQuery really in in client projects?
1: Uh, and this is you know, my observations over the last couple of years, and in part, it's even the answer to the question is in the way you even ask the question. Those query services are just that, they're query services. They are not fully encapsulated databases. And so someone coming from a traditional data warehouse background, yes, those query services have some great use cases that they're absolutely useful for but they aren't necessarily useful as useful across a broader array like a data warehouse is uh, and like a database is. There are more use cases can be served by one than the other. And that's, that's where I think the challenge is is in looking at what are the requirements? And this is really gets down to what's the actual business use case? Um, is it a point solution? that there's a very specific thing that we need to do this and this is all we need to do? Or are we talking about enterprise data warehousing and an enterprise data analytics platform that, you know, as, a, as companies grow, they want to minimize some of that maintenance uh, and the hand coding. And so we're really looking for, like you said, that familiarity of a common standard database interface that we already have staff. Who knows how to do that it's especially true at the enterprise level right you, you've got database administrators and database architects and data warehouse designers that understand this world and i think in part that that's that's why we've seen this this uptake is because the learning curve is much lower i mean and you yourself can probably speak to this better than i because i know you spent a lot of time coming up to speed on BigQuery and implementing it with your customers and contrast that to the learning curve of logging into Snowflake and writing create table and, sel- and select from um, it's, it's a very different experience as well. And, and I think in really the, you, you talk about the design choice, why did our founders make that choice? Well, because well, for one, they were database people and they had seen the market. They saw where the market was going. They they could see the need and the demand um, through throughout the, the years of the big data and data lakes and all of that coming to fruition and say, you know, we need a technology that's going to be familiar and easy to use for the, you know, millions of database professionals out there in the world who are trying to make data more useful to the organizations and really start to treat data as an asset. And, and we need to, to make it simpler for people to do that and allow them to get more and more data in to petabyte scale and get more and more users in as we try to reach this the idea of data democratization and the citizen data scientist to be able to add all these people into the system and, and have it not be uh, an onerous task, so that it's 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 much simpler to do.
0: Okay, okay. So so okay. Other extreme then. Why um why if you're if you're looking for familiarity and you're looking for um fully you know a full range of SQL functions and queries and so on. Why shouldn't I mean I suppose in a way why um. Why is Snowflake leading the market, I suppose, in data warehouse cloud services, and not, for example, the traditional vendors, the SAPs, the Oracle's, the the, the SQL servers that have taken what is a very well known uh, database engine, added a degree of elasticity to uh, to those services and made them available to all their customers in the cloud? You know, how comes Snowflake is doing so well in that? In, you know, with that kind of competition?
1: Because in reality, and this is something a, a quote from Benoit, one of our founders, when I first started those are all being built on the existing code base. And what they discovered themselves through their years of experience was, it was very difficult, if not impossible, to refactor that original code to truly take advantage of the cloud and these capabilities, which is why they invented an entirely new architecture. All the other folks you're talking about, they're either shared nothing or they're shared disk. Uh, and you just you cannot get that full elasticity and flexibility that Snowflake has with those other technologies. In some cases, people have effectively just taken an existing technology and put it on a VM in the cloud and called it a cloud data warehouse. Well, okay, it's a data warehouse in the cloud, but it's not a cloud-based data warehouse, It's not a cloud-native data warehouse. Um, It wasn't written for the cloud. It was ported to the cloud, similar to what they used to do when porting from one operating system to another. The fundamentals of the architecture and the functionality are still pretty much the same. They may be able to make it a little easier by putting a nice front end on it and a little more GUI-driven uh, from an administration perspective, and and obfuscate some of the maintenance and uh, work that needs to be done under the covers by making it truly easier on the front end for the the administrators to do. But in some cases, if you're talking about the things that are platform as a service, your DBA still has to do all the same work as if as if it was in a data center, because in truth, it is in a data center. It's just not a data center you own, right? It's, it's a data center that your vendor owns or a cloud provider owns. And so the work is still there. And that was, again, a part of the goal that our founders had was to make this much simpler. And anything that was even remotely redundant or rote that an administrator would do, well, we can automate that. And so let's do that. Let's automate that and make it so much easier. Uh, so that we can have agile data warehousing and we can have companies start small and grow to as big as, as they need to without having to go through a crazy procurement cycle because they suddenly, you know, they, they, they specked a box thinking it would last for five years and they exploded themselves as a company and in three years they've used it all up and now they've got to go back to the well and get more budget and go out and and go through a procurement process. And all of that's gone with Snowflake. It's all
0: all gone. Okay. So let's go on to so so as I said, you know, when I uh... To, to recap on this bit, really, I mean, it's it's been um, certainly been uh, a pleasant surprise to see how how well you guys have done. And uh, you know, full disclosure, my company is a, is a Snowflake partner. I work on many Snowflake projects now, and it's actually the fact that I was working on them all the time that I actually contacted you and said <laughs> this is actually probably a good time to uh, to have another kind of conversation because um, certainly I, I use the product all the time now. And for me, it's features like say zero copy cloning, it's 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 all all the stuff around that you know that makes it very. Um, nice to work with really. Um, but one thing I'm conscious of is, is since we first spoke a couple of years ago, or since I like, probably last saw you in the States, um, there's been a bunch of uh, product um, enhancements, features, initiatives, and so on that I thought would be interesting to get your opinion on as a, as a person who knows databases very well and data warehousing very well. Um, maybe I'm interested with these as to, you know, what problem these things were, fe- were solving and what's the real kind of, I suppose, innovation behind them. So, I mean, the first one I want to speak to you about is, is the work that's going on you guys are doing around, I think data share houses or journey or data exchanges and so on, you know, what's the, what's the kind of, tell us a bit what, what, what that is and tell us, I suppose, you know, how it leverages the Snowflake architecture to do this and, and so on.
1: Sure, so yeah, so a data sharing, or I, I think our, our marketing term on that was the data share house. So as a feature, what that allows companies to do It allows you to build a, I refer to it as a curated data mart in your Snowflake account and associate it with an object we simply call a share. And say, anyone who has access to this share can see this data. So it might be a schema, it might be a single table, it might be a set of views, uh, but it allows you to encapsulate a set of objects and then grant access to those objects to other snowflake account holders so now i log into my snowflake account and i have a shared database that you built and i can query it it's a read-only database i can't update it it's read-only but this has eliminated the need to export data to first you always had to design it right so if i want to share data with you today i had to go and design my database then i have to build an export process, probably to flat files. I have to put it up onto a secured FTP site somewhere. You download those flat files and you build an ETL process to then load that into your data warehouse. And of course, that all takes time and money. And how often do I refresh this data? You know, is it monthly, quarterly, annually? Well, we may decide it's such a pain in the neck, I'm only gonna refresh it annually. But really, you would like to have it refreshed monthly. Well, there's all that mechanism in place. With the data share house now, we can update it as frequently as you want, and you now see it instantly. So I can, I can get to a near real-time update of this shared data set that's going to deliver more value to the consumer faster without any additional work on their part. And that's, that, that is groundbreaking. I mean, we talk about like Nielsen, who invented the idea of data sharing over a hundred years ago, right? They are selling the TV ratings, right? Collecting them and selling them to various agencies. Now there's no more data transport. So, and it solved solved another interesting problem that I hadn't even thought of originally was there's no more redundant data and no more redundant storage necessary. So if I build you a hundred gigabyte database of shared data, well, you've got to have 100 gigabytes somewhere to in order to consume it and to access it. Well, now with Snowflake, and this is specifically because of the architecture with the separation of compute from storage, that storage is all in the provider's Snowflake account, but it's only once. It doesn't have to be replicated now. And I can share that to any number of other Snowflake customers. And that whole concept, But why would they do that? Well, there's really two use cases. One is the data for good use case. So data that, um, that, that people just want to share to help other people augment their analysis for various reasons. So nonprofit organizations, NGOs, these are all great use cases where they've collected, say, uh, population data, and they need some sort of study done on that, but they don't have the expertise to do the study. Well they can they can provide a curated, anonymized set of that data in a Snowflake share and share that to any number of other organizations that can potentially augment that data and produce the kind of analysis and reports that they're looking for. Uh, And then the monetization is of course the other one, just like uh, my example with Nielsen, is people who sell data, who collect data and sell it and to any number of consumers. And so you build a multi-tenant style um, data share that when somebody logs in, they only see the data pertinent to them, right? That they are actually allowed to see. and so that's really where it, where it scales. And this is where the network effect comes in of uh, provider number one creates a data set, shares it to 20 other downstream consumers. Each of them in turn may augment that data with their own data that they have in their data warehouse. They can now join it to this in their data warehouse and they can create a refined data set that they may share back to the provider or they may share downstream to their consumers. Um, and so you get this, this radical explosion of the usage of the data, but also at the same time allowing organizations to monetize that data. We're talking about data as a true asset now, something that can have a monetary value put on it. And so organizations that didn't have the capacity from either a resource perspective or a skills perspective to necessarily do uh, traditional data sharing and data subscriptions and selling data to their consumers. Um, now they find themselves that, Hey, they can now think about that. They can now think about just sharing data with or without a charge to their business partners for betterment of their ecosystem. Uh, these are all now opportunities there. And so this now has grown into the announcement at our summit back in June of the launching of the Snowflake data exchange. And the data exchange is Snowflake customers who are data aggregators. Uh, and in some way, they, they have data that they believe other people will want access to and will find value from. Some of there's some data sets that are free. There are other data sets that require a subscription, but it's now a matter of just signing up for it, and then you get a share into your Snowflake account. And you can start using that data immediately, and and so this is a whole new um, aspect to the data warehousing and analytics world that is just so much easier. Uh, some people are referring it to the new data economy, right? You've seen seen all these articles. People start saying data is the new oil, right? And people really thinking of you know data as an asset. And there is now a, a certain aspect of the economy that is growing around this. And uh, Snowflake is in the forefront of that with first the data sharehouse concept and the ability to do the sharing, and now having a data exchange, a platform where that's really a data marketplace now that the companies never thought of it before now can look at the data they have and say there's other people that could benefit from this data i'm going to make it available to the world through the snowflake data sharing
0: okay okay so i mean that's okay well, well so other stuff that was announced at um snowflake summit um uh, there was support for gcp as a, as a cloud platform i mean i suppose in a way that in some respects that's not very interesting it's just another way you can consume snowflake but it also, I suppose, in a way, is quite interesting. I suppose technically how you've done that is interesting, but I suppose it maybe the different use cases it opens up. I mean, maybe just tell us about what being available on GCP means in practice and, uh, you know, again, why why, and, um, and what value is there in that?
1: Well, Snowflake was designed from the ground up to be cloud agnostic. So the founder's original vision is we did not want to be uh, locked into a particular cloud. So the The system itself is self-contained, if you will, and was designed to write to the APIs of the underlying cloud providers. So that's what allowed us to develop on Amazon and then port to Azure and now port over and have an implementation on Google Cloud is the guts of Snowflake, the intellectual property and the unique functionality of Snowflake is encapsulated in the Snowflake engine itself. Um, It's being powered by the blob storage and the compute of the underlying cloud provider. Now, why this is coming up now is simply the demand, is there are companies for various region, reasons that have their uh, allegiance, if you will, for whatever reasons, technical or economic, to the different major cloud providers. And so the demand is there, and we are, we are an agile engineering company. The demand is now to the point that it is on our prioritized backlog if you want to talk in Scrum terminology now. Um, So it's floated to the top. Now it's it's time to go work on that. It's time to now build out our offering on Google because we have enough uh, of a customer base that is saying, yes, this is interesting. We want to be able to use Snowflake on Google, and it may be because they have a lot of data already on Google. Um, And that's been kind of what I've seen is, you know, companies who have a lot of data on AWS, they tend to go with Snowflake on AWS. Likewise with Azure and now with Google is that the the folks that are uh, that are going to be that have a lot of data and a lot of investment in their data already on Google would prefer to access that uh, with Snowflake on Google simply because it's um, it's going to be the most convenient for them and it's actually going to be the lowest cost for them because otherwise they got to pull the data out of Google over somewhere else uh, for it to be accessible to Snowflake in another platform.
0: Mm, okay. Well, so tell us a bit about Snowpipe. I mean, we've been looking at one of the places, that one of the consult, I suppose, one of the customers that I work with is, is is actually putting Snowpipe in place now to bring in event data and bring in real time data. But just tell us what about what is Snowpipe and um um what's it used for and what's it how does it also relate to things like the Kafka integration that's been announced recently?
1: Yeah. So uh, S- Snowpipe is our serverless data loading offering. Uh, and it really works with you you drop the data into your blob storage, whether it's uh, S3 on Amazon or Google or, uh, sorry, uh, Azure blob storage. And we can automatically pick up those files and load them into tables in Snowflake. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a continuous loading feature and it is serverless. So based on the size and number of files that it senses on a pipe, it automatically, under the covers, spins up the, uh, the commute, compute automatically and loads the data and then turns it off. And it saves you that administration because previous to Snowpipe, uh, the primary mechanism for loading data to Snowflake was a copy command, but you had to have a virtual warehouse configured. And so you had to size it and uh, make sure that it was available and, and run, when you're running your loading processes. And so this allows people to not have to do that. And actually, it was the first serverless function that we that we introduced um, to our ecosystem. Uh, there's an API for that, so folks writing JavaScript and Python and other things can address it directly using the API. We call that the Snowpipe Expert Mode. Uh, and then there's an auto ingest feature where it's simply define the pipe, define the endpoints, drop the drop the data in, kind of like a like you mentioned Kafka like a Kafka queue, and it just picks it up out of the blob storage and loads it in. So that's that's the basics. But we are also as as you said, um, announced at uh, our summit that we are getting native Kafka integration as well. So somebody can use Kafka to stream data right into Snowflake, where previous to that, you would you could use people use Kafka and would stream it, and drop it into an s three bucket, and then Snowpipe would pick it up and load it in. Well, now we can make that a more seamless process um, by by loading directly into Snowflake through through Kafka. And it really, the, the goal of all these kinds of things is to have an ecosystem that provides choice to the customer. So whatever their preferred engineering method is, uh, whatever preferred ETL they may already have today or ELT process they have today, we want it to be as simple as possible for them to move into Snowflake without necessarily having to retool everything. Now, of course, as you know, we're seeing more and more demand, especially with IoT data, to do near real time, continuous feeds, streams of data. So there is certainly a increase in people using things like Kafka. And so it's incumbent upon us to provide that um, opportunity for them. And so working with with the various tool vendors to help them um, build the connectors into Snowflake and have the facilities to do these sorts of things is part of what we do in trying to make sure that we are able to put our customers first and, and give them the functionality and tools that they need to be successful.
0: Okay. Okay. What about um, another thing I saw on my list of things here that I've seen that are interesting about Snowflake? Um, JavaScript stored procedures. Um, so, of course, you and I are very familiar with with the idea of stored procedures, and we spent many, many years of our previous careers kind of working and consulting in this. T- tell us what. Tell us what problem JavaScript stored procedures solve, and I suppose in a way, how are they different to the things that you and I would have been used to in the past, things like PLSQL and that sort of thing.
1: Well, it's, I mean, like you said, stored procedures, there was a, a demand for it and we've now added it, but we chose JavaScript because we didn't want to create another, yet another proprietary procedural language like the other database vendors have done. You mentioned PLSQL. PLSQL is something that Oracle invented. And so the choice to go with JavaScript is it's something that more people know, right? We want to make this again, accessible to the broader audience. And also at the same time, not create something that is so proprietary that nobody else can figure out how to use it, right? Uh, and so that's really that's, that's why the choice of JavaScript, we didn't want to go and invent yet another procedural language in order to support stored procedures inside of Snowflake. And uh, from early on when I joined the company, we already had uh, we had user-defined functions. And user-defined functions in Snowflake can be done with either JavaScript or just straight SQL. And so this is just following, I'll say, in kind with our uh, stored procedures being JavaScript stored procedures.
0: Okay, okay. Um. So we recently had... Um... Uh, um, the one of the product managers for um, for BigQuery um, on the on the show a while ago, and he was talking about um, we were talking about the feature called um, the BI engine that was that's come out in BigQuery recently, and it made me kind of think. You know, a lot of uh, one of the things I'd really like with Snowflake, or certainly I've perhaps seen a need for, is something that gives us. Um, you know, I suppose more split second response times and, and and beyond you'd get with a kind of column store database. I mean, what, what's the, I mean, I know there's been um, materialized views that have come out with uh, Snowflake recently. Maybe tell us about those, and then maybe kind of if you can talk me maybe talk about where you might see this going, or, or the problems to be solved in this area, or whatever. Really, yeah. So, well, the materialized views
1: first off are just they they are a performance enhancement. So, for specifically for things like aggregations. Um, uh, specific subsets on very, very large data sets that may be required for dashboards or other kinds of reporting to, to optimize that performance so somebody's not having to go through and, you know, I'll say, do aggregations against 100 billion rows every time you execute the query, you build a, build a materialized view that does that aggregation. And then under the covers, what we have is another serverless feature that keeps it up to date. So as the underlying table is updated, we are automatically resyncing that materialized view. Uh, and in order, again, it, it's, I think of it in terms of kind of an ELT process um, without having to do the ELT, right? You know, why code it when you can have the, the system do it? So this is, again, one of those features that we've, we've put in to enable that sort of thing. Uh, the, uh, the relationship to what you're talking about uh, uh, about these very small millisecond response sorts of uh, BI queries that's definitely something we have some cu- yeah we, 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 have, we have some people uh, customers doing that already with Snowflake and it is really a, a matter of figuring out the optimal data model in some cases to facilitate those query patterns as well as getting the right, uh, right, I'll say right-sizing their virtual warehouse. And our multi-cluster warehouse feature that allows us to horizontally scale a virtual warehouse comes into play there. If you're you're suddenly having a burst of a thousand queries come in against a particular uh, table. To to do all these kinds of little queries, one of the features you can take advantage of is our multi-cluster warehouse, where you may start off with a, a single cluster, you know, say a small, which is two nodes, and then it, there's a uh, inbound and a lot more queries, and it just it it starts queuing the queries. It'll automatically spin up another cluster in parallel and load balance it and so that's how we kind of we we address that particular need for i'll say high level of concurrency on on queries at a particular time is is this automatic horizontal scaling of a, a virtual warehouse
0: okay fantastic i mean certainly i found that when i've been i, I did a well first of all i was, I was asked to do um, a snowflake tuning exercise for a customer and yeah, you know, what you rapidly find out is there is very little to tune um, which is which is good, obviously. I mean, you've got it's a column store database. Um, you know, there, there aren't indexes, there aren't kind of you know, and so on, really. Um, and and again, my advice to the customer was was to was to look at the data model and pre pre-tra- pre transform and all the classic kind of data warehousing things that we we used to do. And I think that. Um, so, so certainly uh, other vendors might be able to say, oh, we've got OLAP servers built here, we've got this, we've got that, but it adds complication to it really. And um, I mean, just maybe t- just maybe, just to explain to us again, how, how does the multi-cluster thing work? Because in a way, if compute is separated from storage, why is there a need to have a sort of second or third cluster and how, how, how does that work in practice really?
1: Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, the the compute, as you said, is is separated from the storage. But imagine, if you will, a a dashboard that typically on a typical day, 10, 15, 20 users may be accessing it and running their reports on these dashboards. And so that requires a small virtual warehouse. But month end rolls around and there's several hundred people that need access to that same data. Well, you could go in and potentially resize that virtual warehouse uh, to something larger But in truth, the best way to handle concurrency is to have additional nodes. But because you've got a dashboard and say, you know, the dashboard's using this warehouse, you don't want to go in and say, well, if it's user A, go to warehouse one. If it's user B, go to warehouse two. So instead, we created this thing called the multi-cluster warehouse where we can say this this virtual warehouse, which might be two nodes, can add parallel clusters that are exactly the same size and then we automatically load balance those queries so if there's 100 queries come in and they start to queue we'll automatically spin up a second parallel cluster and take some of those queued clusters and move them over to the second cluster so that they can be running indeed in parallel with the other the other queries and if the queuing continues, we can spend up a third and a fourth and a fifth, and you can configure it to go all the way up to 10. And so things like the classic Black Friday, you now don't have to build your system for the peak load. You can configure Snowflake to to automatically scale out to handle that peak load, and then when the load passes, it automatically turns itself off so you're not paying for those additional compute resources, when indeed nobody actually needs them, um, and so that's this is one of those set it forget it things. Uh, you once you realize that that's the use case for this particular environment, you create you make it a multi-cluster warehouse by simply saying you define a minimum number of nodes and a maximum number of nodes, and then the the system handles the rest. So uh, I like to say, you know, no more pagers going off on Black Friday saying the system's down because we ran out of resources. If you configure it using this, it automatically scales and everybody's happy. The SLAs are maintained. And when it's over, it just scales itself right back down.
0: Yeah, excellent, and actually, yeah, that, that's that's brilliant. Um, so, Ken, look, I'm conscious of the time I've kept you now, um, and it's been really good catching up with you. And uh, you know, I, I've um, look, you're actually you're over in the UK quite a bit, aren't you? Actually, I think you're with your um, your your food uh, your food photographs and your foodie kind of interests. You uh, you're over here quite a bit, and obviously for, on the back, on on the for, for Snowflake. But tell us tell us a bit about kind of when you're next speaking, and when you're next kind of in Europe and that sort of thing.
1: Well, let's see. Uh, next speaking in the U.S. is actually the Northern California Oracle user group. I am going to be giving a keynote there and also talking about cl- cloud data warehousing. Um, How would you do that? I was, I was invited. The president of the group invited me to come and give this talk. So, yeah. And, and, and in truth, Mark, one of the things that's happening in the user community world, even in specifically the Oracle community that you and I, are, are so fond of, uh, have, we spent many years supporting the, these communities and we still do, is that the, the leadership of the Oracle user groups is seeing the need to provide a diversity of information to their members because the world is no longer homogenous. And to be an Oracle expert is phenomenal and it's a great career achievement. But as our companies are evolving and we're moving to the cloud, it's, it's not just one technology anymore. Um, just like with Kafka and the other streaming methods that we've had to learn, it's no longer, as you and I met, doing Oracle Warehouse Builder. Yeah, the story has changed. And so I'll say the the enlightened leadership of several of these major user groups has seen that they need to expand beyond uh, the one vendor policy and really become an, edu- an educational organization to their members to empower their members to be successful in their careers. So that's really the truth of it. Uh, The next next time I'm in Europe, uh, I am scheduled, I am now gonna be speaking at the first ever worldwide Data Vault Consortium in Europe. It's traditionally been held in the US and was held here in Vermont uh, back in May. But in uh, September, we're gonna be having the first ever event of that kind in Hanover, Germany. And I will actually be coming over to talk about data modeling schema on READ. Another one of my, as you know, my favorite topic is data modeling. Uh, So Snowflake is actually a sponsor at that event. Uh, And then it looks like I may be speaking in Amsterdam, well, Utrecht, specifically at Big Data Expo. We're still working out the details on that. And a a Snowflake-sponsored event in Zurich, Switzerland all within about a two-week time period there in early September. Um, About to head off on holiday myself here for a couple of weeks, as it is that time of year. And so, yeah, those are the – right when I come back, I go to Northern California to do the one talk, and then it's off to uh, uh, Germany and uh, the Netherlands and Switzerland for uh, my next round of talks there in Europe.
0: Fantastic. I mean, just, I'm just thinking back to when we when we last when we recorded the first uh, episode with you, and the title was uh, "Is Data Modeling Dead?" And yet, ironically, today I actually sent you an email asking if you put me in touch with somebody at Snowflake who could help one of my customers with their data modeling questions around Snowflake. Um, and and I think that's the kind of the irony, not the irony, but the, uh, the, the in a way it shows. Uh, shows how things have kind of not changed, but it shows what a good bet um, I think Snowflake made and also probably what a good bet you made um, in terms of, you know, going to move with, going to work with Snowflake and uh, and sort of focus on that technology. Absolutely. Yes. So how do people get a trial then of Snowflake just to kind of round things off?
1: It, it, it's incredibly easy. You simply go to Snowflake.com. Uh, There's a button in the upper right corner of our website and you simply click on that and it's uh, – You put in a little bit of information and you get a 30-day free trial.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, look, Kent, it's been great speaking to you. Thank you very much. Um, Enjoy your holiday and um, enjoy yourself over in Europe later in the year. If you do make it back to the UK, give me a shout and uh, I'll buy you dinner again. And, And well done. It's been great to speak to you. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for having me again, Mark. Appreciate it.